Corruption is by nature uh, hidden. You don't want other people to know. Some people believe that corruption is not that far from the current uh, conflict. And as I said before, crisis, instability, including conflicts, are always generating or generated by corruption. Today, thinking through with LJ, I'm privileged to have a seat with the lawyer and the lecturer Valentina Lana to discuss corruption in times of crisis. I'm trying to understand the global policy framework for the fight against corruption. I'm your host, Leopoldine Geronimo. Well, I've been tempted to look into it as anti-corruption, a conceptual and policy framework for the global accountability. I think the boundaries are unclear, and this is where you come in. Valentina, let's set the stage first before we dive into it, who you are and what you do. Thank you for having me today, Leo. It's a, it's a pleasure. It's a delight. Um, and it will be a pleasure to, to talk about uh, corruption, to be more precise, to talk about the fight against corruption, which is a topic that has become a passion, an area of expertise, a, a fight. I would say the fight against corruption has become uh, my personal fight, uh, but I fight it with a smile. I think that using uh, weapons to fight against corruption is not the right uh, option, as in many situations in life. Um, I believe that fighting against corruption uh, with, first of all, a smile, second of all, and open to listen uh, from other people, um, open to expose ourselves to different experiences, including different policies, um, and try to, to talk to people and to be very uh, diplomatic, tactful, uh, curious is the right way to go to, if you if we want to be effective in the fight against corruption. And again, anti-corruption is a very technical uh, matter. It's a legal matter, and all that is legal is extremely uh, detailed, precise, technical, to the extent that it might uh, not interest people. And I am being very um, sweet in the way I'm putting it. And I prefer to put anti-corruption in a in a bigger framework, which is uh, integrity, um, integrity and ethics, uh, doing business in an uh, ethical way. And this is what anti-corruption is. Uh, we do anti-corruption in companies. We do anti-corruption in business. And I always consider it as a way to build a strong, a robust uh, culture of ethics. Um, this is very general. I don't want to refuse your question, which is uh, who I am. I am a lawyer by training. I've been living in, in, in Paris for a very long time, uh, almost 10 years. And I came to Paris in 2012 for an internship at a law firm. And I was supposed to stay for two months. But we are, here we are in, in 2022. And I'm still speaking from Paris, where I live. Uh, I now work in uh, compliance. And what I do is that I help companies build a strong anti-corruption and strong in general uh, compliance uh, programs, not just to, to comply with a single law or a, or a regulation, but more generally to create a uh, culture of integrity. 
which means to, to do business ethically and not just to do business ethically, but to live with integrity and with uh, uh, ethics as a North Star. That's the complexity of it, isn't it? Perhaps a perspective that is lacking in the search for clarity about corruption is the extent to how things legally play when we think of accountability. How do you go about getting started on it? Yes, and I always consider that a good approach uh, to uh, problem solving or to at least finding solutions is to give definitions to understand uh, what exactly we're talking about. In so many situations, we cannot find an answer just because we haven't framed the problem. We, we lost sight of what the issue is. So first, uh, first step is to give a definition of corruption, a very general definition of corruption. Corruption is the abuse of power for personal gain. This is a very, very broad, very general definition. If we want to give a legal definition, of course, it depends on the legal system. So in general, it depends on the country. But more or less, I would say that yeah, the, the different um, elements of corruption are the same in many, in many countries. Corruption is when A gives to B something of, of value, uh, an advantage, could be a financial advantage or another kind of advantage, so that B does or does not something that uh, goes to the advantage of A. For example, I give you uh, money so that you will give uh, back to me, uh, I don't know, some business opportunity. And this happens in particular uh, with uh, public officials. It's called public corruption. When either A or B is a public official, someone working for or representing the legislative, uh, the administrative or the um, judicial function, can be a mayor, it can be a, a member of, of the parliament, it can be a judge, uh, it can be an agent or an officer of international organization. Um, this is what is called the, the um, public corruption. And then there is private corruption where neither A nor B are officials. The use of power for personal gains. It reminds me of Dalia Matilda Ferreira Rubio, the chair of Transparency International. She was speaking at the 2022 OECD forum, saying corruption kills, fills wars, undermines democracy, and it sustains autocracies. What she says led me to understand that corruption is perhaps a channel of power play. My question to you is, how can we discuss corruption in terms of magnitude and differences in perceptions about it Acknowledging different cultures and government systems around the world, including not only the US, UK or France, but also Mozambique, Brazil or China, in addition to the list of all the countries worldwide. What is corruption somewhere may not be considered corruption elsewhere. How about that? It is certainly true that the uh, expressions, the manifestation of corruption can be different uh, in different cultures but at the very core is exactly the same. The very basic and general definition I gave at the beginning, the abuse of power for personal gain, uh, applies to every culture. Of course, you need to be smart in a way and to 
to hide, to conceal corruption so that it doesn't look like it is illegal. And you make it palatable for people to accept your uh, corruption and to accept your offer to corrupt. But at the very core, I strongly believe that it is exactly the same. And you can tell when it is corruption. You mentioned the index. I believe that not only to give a definition uh, is uh, absolutely paramount to understand what corruption is and how to tackle corruption, but what is also essential is to understand the magnitude of corruption. Why do we need to understand how, how big or how small corruption is? Simply because when you, when you understand the importance of it, you will be able to prioritize it. You will be able to prioritize public policies and actions that need to be taken and resources that need to be mobilized to fight against corruption. So give a definition, understand the phenomenon, including uh, not to say starting with its magnitude, are absolutely essential steps to determine if anything needs to be done. And if you consider that something needs to be done, how do I prioritize my action? In other words, if I know that corruption is, is a big uh, phenomenon, I will prioritize my action. And in my public agenda, the fight against corruption will come first or second or third. Um, if, on the contrary, uh, I realize that corruption is not that big an issue, I will certainly not prioritize actions to fight against corruption. So understanding the magnitude of an issue is a, is a, good, um, is a good indicator, is a good start to determining how to prioritize action to tackle that particular issue. Again, corruption is extremely difficult to measure because it's by nature uh, a hidden phenomenon. Of course, you don't want people to know that you corrupt other people or that you are a corrupted person yourself and you don't uh, uh, announce it on the radio or you don't go on TV to pay bribes. So corruption is by nature hidden. You don't want other people to know. At the same time, the organization that tried to put together figures that are not accurate figures, of course, far from that, but that give you an idea. I will put it in very simple terms. Is corruption big or small? If it is big, we need to do something about it. If it is negligible, well, let's prioritize other issues that exist in, 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 in countries. Um, I have two extremes of corruption perception ratings. Three countries, Denmark, Finland and New Zealand, rank one, indicating that in these countries there is no corruption, right? They are scored 88. South Sudan ranks 180 with 11 scores. In between these extremes, we have all the other countries, including Mozambique, ranked 147 with 26 scores, and the United States ranked 27 with 67 scores. A highlight to this is Russia, ranking 136 with 26 scores, and Ukraine ranking 122 with 32 scores. Here's a question, right? How different corruption is playing a role in these countries? A temptation that voices out to me is, 
the quest for natural resources, decolonization legacies, conflicts, and other factors. But some of these have not been colonized. If they have, their stories completely different. But help me out. Corruption blends in quite differently and with big style. We want to, if we want to better describe or decipher what you are saying, we should probably use a different word. We should say instability. When you say instability, it certainly includes conflict, all kinds of crises, financial crises, uh, health crises, and we have just uh, we're just at the end of a very big one. Um, it also includes natural disasters, and studies have been conducted on the um, impact of natural disasters on uh, corruption, how natural disasters generate uh, corruption in a way. So I agree with you, but I would put a different label, I would use a, a different word, which is instability. And instability certainly creates corruption, and corruption creates instability. So it's it's a vicious circle. But again, instability is certainly the the right word to use, the right notion. Instability. I think I'll take that. Now, the point is, what consequences of corruption can you discuss? As diverse it may play in different countries. I'm just trying to assume that the consequences will be different depending on how big the country is and how powerful the parties involved are. Perhaps you can help me understand in the global perspective, even if you want to bring the COVID-19 pandemic, if it applies. Yes. Well, I'm happy to first give you not a list of consequences, but, but the categories of consequences generated by corruption. And then I can walk you through a corruption and crisis, in particular, corruption in the COVID crisis. So first of all, the categories of consequences. You have consequences on countries and consequences on companies, on business. And this is in general the, the, the perspective from which I work as I try to help companies create a culture of anti-corruption. Uh, but the macro categories of consequences are the same. You, of course, have legal consequences. You have fines, you have imprisonment uh, in case of uh, corruption. And this is pretty straightforward. Everybody knows that there are legal consequences to corruption. Then you have financial consequences. A fine has a cost, of course, but there is also another perspective for companies, uh, which is a business-to-business perspective and a business-to-consumer perspective. If you are a company with a reputation of corruption, other companies might not want to work with you, might exclude you, just because working with you as a corrupted company could expose them to a risk of corruption. And this is in a B2B perspective. In a B2C perspective, a business to client, customers might decide not to buy the products or the services of a company because they know that that company has a, an ethical business practices. And there is also another aspect to this. As a uh, corrupted company, you cannot keep or, or expand your business because you're excluded from business opportunity. 
So uh, the macro category is the category of financial consequences of corruption. And then you have a, a reputation. Your reputation is, of course, tarnished as people know that you uh, uh, that you are a company or a person who corrupts other people or vice versa. You are corrupted. So big damage to the reputation. And we'll live in a society where people pay more and more attention to what they buy and to the company they buy their products and services from. And so when the reputation of a business operator is tarnished, it means that potentially clients will not go to that operator anymore because they want to buy products that are made by ethical companies, uh, not to buy clothes or, or other objects uh, produced by a company uh, that exploits children, for example. This is much broader than just corruption. But just to tell you that in our society, people pay more and more attention to what they buy and to what is behind what they buy. Another macro category of uh, uh, consequences of corruption is the competition. There is no fair competition. There is no level playing field when there is a, a corruption. Um, companies are not uh, selected based on, or just, or people are not selected based on their, on their skills, on their experience, on their expertise, but just because they paid a bribe. And so there is no uh, level playing field when there is corruption, which is a damage to competition. Another category for people who uh, still care about it is uh, ethics, is uh, uh, morality. Um, we, we want to be uh, uh, good citizens or good uh, corporate citizens. And when there is corruption, there, there certainly is no ethics. And then one um, additional uh, consequence or, or category of consequences is the rights of citizens. You want citizens to, to benefit from the best possible services. And when money goes to corruption, when bribes are paid, this big amount of monies don't go to schools, hospitals, museums, universities, research centers, streets, etc., etc. All this money is money that is stolen from noble purposes and that don't go to the benefit of citizens. So these are the macro categories of uh, consequences of corruption, legal, financial, reputational, competition, ethics, and the rights of citizens. Here's another push to the link. How do we then apply these categories in real motion? I'm trying to understand how corruption is one of the blood cells in the ongoing conflicts worldwide. Of course, some people believe that corruption is not that far from the current conflict. What I did a few weeks ago uh, is that I, 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 I did a bit of research to see what was in the uh, program of uh, not yet President Zelensky back then when he ran for president. Of course, I don't speak Ukrainian, so I could only read sources that were in other languages, and people were not paying that much uh, attention to the Ukrainian election, not as much as they would have 
pay attention to other uh, elections, other countries. Still, I could find a few articles in which they describe what Zelensky wanted to do if elected president. And one of the first topics, not to say the first topic, was the fight against corruption. And since that, uh, some uh, business operators, in particular in Russia, were very unhappy with that because it would have meant that paying bribes would not be the way to go to uh, keep or expand business in Ukraine. So, of course, it was not the trigger, but it, is, it certainly is in the landscape of the, uh, of the causes for the conflict. And as I said before, crisis, instability, including conflicts, are always generating or generated by corruption. I was trying to dig back into the ranking of Transparency International. Would you like to lift my intellect up on this? We should probably say a couple of words on Transparency International. It goes back to uh, the whole notion of measuring, assessing corruption, giving a number to corruption, which is extremely difficult, as I said before, because corruption is by nature a hidden phenomenon. But still, we want to try to understand, and it's a very very natural for, for, for human beings to try to understand and to give labels to things, to, to, uh, to realities. So Transparency International, on an annual basis, releases a, uh, um, an index, not an index of corruption, but an index of uh, the perception of corruption. The index is two numbers, actually, the uh, grade and the score. It's exactly like in school, grade is from uh, zero to 100. And then you have the, the, the rank, which is who is the best country, who is the worst country, uh, first, the second, et cetera. And you just said that the number one is Denmark. So score and rank, the two components of the Transparency International Index. How does Transparency, Transparency International uh, come up with these uh, numbers with the index? What this organization does is that it utilizes 13 different sources, works on them with a very complex mathematical formula to come to the index, to come to the score, to come to the rank, to, to have results that are uh, homogeneous, coming from 13 different sources, coming from 13 different results, uh, which means that uh, when you see the uh, uh, score or the rank of Transparency International, when you see the index, it is quite granular because it's from zero to 100. And it is the product of many different sources, reliable sources, of course, which uh, should put together the benefits and the quality of all the other sources. Uh, there are pros and cons, of course, to this index. I would say that the negative um, aspects are. Number one, it is only one, well, not one, but two numbers uh, for each country. So you don't get to see nuances, aspects of corruption, but you only have that label that is given to a country. Some people consider that um, the, the, the Transparency International Index, given that it relies on sources that are in general um, research done by international organizations, is the expression of a uh, Western uh, elite, of a 
same way of doing things, same way of seeing problems, same way of analyzing things. Uh, also, Transparency International also cons only considers uh, public corruption, not private corruption. So these are some of the aspects that are considered as not uh, particularly good in trying in, in, in helping us understand corruption. But there are also, of course, very positive aspects. The fact that it's only one number, only one label, is probably uh, poor and sufficient, but it is extremely effective to tell you uh, which country uh, does particularly well in the fight against corruption and which countries should do much better uh, in, in the fight against corruption. And as I said before, it puts together many reliable sources so that you have a very high quality product when you look at the Transparency International Index. It's like a summary. It captures many dimensions of corruption in only one or two numbers. And it can also give you an idea of uh, the country you would like to live in, given how corruption is perceived in, in a given country. So you might really want to move to uh, Northern Europe since it, 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 it scores particularly well in the Transparency International uh, Index. Another interesting point is how the index is used. Uh, first of all, the way we just did it, the way you did it, is to see uh, how well a country does in the fight against corruption. This is the, 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 first, the first way you could use that index. And the second um, is to uh, make uh, investment choices. A company might want to look at the Transparency International Index to decide in which country to invest, in which country to expand its business in which country to create a subsidiary. And you can also use it in, in another way. As a company, uh, you might decide to do business or not to do business with a given third party, with another, uh, with another company, based on the level of perceived corruption in the, in the country where that company operates. Uh, we call this due diligence. It's uh, part of anti-corruption programs to assess third parties law firms, consultants, service providers, et cetera, et cetera, third parties you want to do business with, you assess them and what you assess is also the country where they are based, where they operate, uh, which gives you an idea of your own exposure to corruption. And based on that, you determine if you want to do business with a, uh, another company or not. And you use the Transparency International Index uh, as one of the factors that will tell you the level of corruption to which that uh, business partner will expose you. As we come at the last quarter of our moment, I'm curious to know more about France's anti-corruption turnaround and the path forward. The article you recently co-authored with Michel Sapin and published it through Matthew Stephenson's global anti-corruption blog at Harvard School. Would you bring to the surface a few key points of your opinion there? There is a very positive message um, for people with uh, um, a passion for international relations like you, like me, which is that uh, the OECD, an international organization, played an essential role in uh, the uh, great progress that France has made in the fight against corruption. 
France is a member of the OECD and is also a member of the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention. For countries, uh, member or, or, or parties or signatories to the convention, uh, there is a monitoring, uh, there is a monitoring system in, in four phases, very detailed, very, very detailed. France underwent that monitoring, phase two of the monitoring, with a report released in 2012. And the, the conclusions of the uh, report were particularly negative. And the French government, uh, it was a, a, a crisis, I would say a minor crisis, but it still was a crisis. And the French government realized that action needed to be taken to fight against corruption. And this is exactly what happened uh, via uh, OECD report in 2012, particularly negative. And the French government, as a result, as a reaction, taking action to fight against corruption all the way to 2016, December 9th, with the adoption of the French anti-corruption law called the Loi Sapindu. This is how it happened. And this is to show you that international cooperation, international bodies can play a vital role in the fight against corruption. From the highlights I made going through your article among a few, I came up with the following question. How does the transnational bribery you mention in the article play in the context of the global trade nuances, foreign direct investments or global interventions? Well, it's very easy. You want to do business abroad uh, and you pay bribes uh, to a uh, foreign official to obtain a business, uh, the procurement system is what you do. You pay bribes. Uh, and you do that in particular when you want to invest abroad. You don't know exactly how it works in another country, but you know for sure that people uh, have uh, an appetite for personal gain. And that happens in every country. Uh, so you will pay a bribe. Uh, pay a bribe, it's not just to, to give some money to someone. It could uh, happen in a, in a more elegant, not to say delicate way, a gift. It could be a, an invitation to a, a, a lavish meal at a very elegant restaurant. It could be a, a, a trip to invite um, the public official to visit Paris and offer a very, very nice trip, a very nice, very nice conditions. Um, and these are all the advantages I referred to at the very beginning of the of our uh, session, at the very beginning of our conversation, as the advantages, not just financial advantages, but any kind of advantage. It could be a job. It could be an internship. You give this to me and I will hire your daughter, your son, your cousin, or I will give an internship to your, to your brother. It happens in many different ways. I am now referring to uh, gifts and invitations and all the people working in, in uh, compliance departments in every company on the planet know that one of our first preoccupations uh, are gifts and invitations. And you need to be fully transparent. You need to be clear not to avoid uh, gifts or invitations. You can still invite someone for lunch, a small present for, for Christmas, for example, or, or for, for New Year's. But you, you, you cannot, you can you certainly um, cannot uh, 
invite anybody to, to a lavish meal at an elegant restaurant because there will be a suspicion. It could really be not just to celebrate uh, an, an event or to, to celebrate a, a business partnership, but it could be for other reasons. It could be to obtain something. So gifts and invitation are certainly one of the main, as I said before, preoccupations of uh, uh, compliance officers or, or people in general working in, in compliance. I want to add something. We never use the word, or, or not many times today, the word risk. We haven't. What we try to do when we work in compliance is not to reduce or to uh, eliminate risk. We wake up in the morning, we take risks. Even when we go to bed at night, we take risks. There is no situation in life in which there is zero risk, including in compliance. Our approach shouldn't be to say no, not to work with other companies in a given country because the perception of corruption is particularly high. We always expose ourselves to risk, including a risk of corruption. What we should do when we work in compliance is to analyze, to decipher, to understand, and to take measures to protect ourselves, to reduce our exposure to a risk of corruption. So zero risk is absolutely impossible in life. But what we need to do when we fight against corruption is to, to understand, uh, to, to, to have a good picture of the landscape, including the, the risk landscape, and to determine what needs to be done to attenuate that risk. Knowing the French law, what has really changed is the mentality in the, uh, in the private sector, in companies. There is now an obligation to build anti-corruption programs. So, of course... Even before the French anti-corruption law, corruption was absolutely forbidden. But with the French law in 2016, companies were asked to make an additional effort, which was just not to refrain from corruption, but to be proactive and to build robust programs to avoid corruption, to create a culture in the company that would lead people to be no corruption. This is what has really changed uh, in France with the anti-corruption law. But it's, again, very much focused on the private sector. I think now what we need is to dig into specific case studies and ongoing anti-corruption trials. You will also be walking us through the most legal framework you're working on or advocating what we did today was just to start a conversation that sets the stage of such a complex topic. I mean, you, you're the expert, you know how deep it can go. I'm just guessing that it's too deep because from where I'm staring all this, development and peace interventions have a shrinking integral space to make an effective, positive and long lasting impact. I'll happily tell you more about the legal mechanisms underline the obligation to build compliance programs because at the end of the day what we talk about when we talk about the fight against corruption is compliance programs to detect and to actually fight against corruption 
So I will give you examples uh, coming from the, the three uh, the three countries I am most familiar whose legislation I am most familiar with, France, US, and UK. Uh, and I will tell you what the ingredients of uh, robust, strong, good anti-corruption programs are. And what is uh, good news is that in the end, uh, the components, the elements of strong anti-corruption programs are more or less the same in the three in the three countries, which means that to effectively fight against corruption, you need to put in place two, three, four, five things that are not that different when you do it in the States, in the UK, or in France. It can come as very good news, in particular for companies. They don't have to adapt that much. Uh, but it also uh, comes as good news to citizens because you will see uh, that some actions are particularly effective to fight against corruption. For example, to protect whistleblowers, to have procedures and, 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 and codes of conduct, to map the risk of corruption, which in general is number one step Exactly as I said before, give definitions, understand what we are talking about. And mapping corruption, mapping the risks of corruption means understanding your landscape. And when you know what your landscape is, you will know how to respond to it, how to how to move in it, how to dodge the obstacles. So number one is mapping the risk, taking a picture of the landscape so that you can make adjustments and respond in a way that is um, effective and adequate to the risks. But I'm talking too much, and I think that this will be the topic for our next conversation, and I will be looking forward. I don't think knowledge is ever too much to share. After all, that's why we're here. So whatever it is, please bring it on. That was Valentina Lana, a lecturer at Paris School of International Affairs and a lawyer. I'm your host, Leopoldino Geronimo. I'll see you on the next episode.